Welcome to Funds and Founders. This weekly show is tailored for Austin founders navigating the early stages of their entrepreneurial journey. I'm your host and fellow Austinite, Abhinav Sinha. If you're looking for the motivation and the insight needed to build a successful company, you're in the right place. Today we have Salim. He's a graduate from University of Waterloo, did his bachelor's and master's. He's had multiple sales roles in the past. He's a two-time founder, founded Jerop, which was a rideshare company in Canada. He was the founder and CEO of Zone, which enabled contactless pickups for the restaurant industry during COVID. And currently he's the founding partner at NTVC based here in Austin. Welcome to the podcast, Salim. Why don't you give yourself a quick intro and tell the audience who you are and what you're doing. Thank you. My sales roles were in startups. So I got a lot of early stage uh, sales experience, basically helping founders bridge the gap between you know having a good technical product and being able to get their product out into the world and actually be able to sell it. So you know I've been in the startup ecosystem for about 10 years. And now what I'm doing with Anti-VC is putting all of those learnings together and being able to help founders with the problems that I experienced as a founder and that I see other founders you know, experience themselves nowadays. Sweet. So what I like to capture on the podcast is just the journey of people building, people being in this space of being an entrepreneur and the startup. So I wanted to ask you, where do you think your entrepreneurial journey started? What do you think was the first venture that you did that you would consider your entrepreneurial journey? I'm not sure when it started per se, and I'm not sure it was even a conscious decision. So, you know, I, I went to school for mechanical engineering. I worked in a typical corporate job for a couple of years. And what I noticed was I didn't understand. I was probably one of the only people there who didn't understand why they were there. Like I couldn't comprehend why people were interested in the work and why they took their career so seriously. Because to me, it was just like really, really boring, monotonous, the same thing day in and day out and playing corporate like politics to be able to work your way up. And so I think the moment of illumination came at one of my yearly review sessions and it was me, my boss and his boss. And we went through like my KPIs are like, yeah, you exceeded everything. You're doing really good. But if you want to get ahead at this company, you need to start working the same hours that everyone else works. And so I was doing like my seven, eight hours, whatever it was. These guys worked on average 12 hours a day. They would share timesheets at the weekly meetings to compare like hours that, that everyone was working. I thought that was really bizarre. So basically I'm like, what is the point in me coming here to show that I'm working when, you know, I get my, I already get my work done in, in less than that time. And I'm, I'm bored figuring out other stuff to fill my day with. And I'm like, that's just the way it is. The way they said it, it was just like, they just accepted it for what it is versus ask, you know, does this make sense or is this really what I want to be doing? And so, you know, I'm like, all right, thanks for letting me know. Uh, I started working even less hours after that. <laughs> and eventually I, I quit. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, there's got to be a better, like, th thing for me out there. So there's some sure. sort of itch, you would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if I'm going to spend eight hours a day in an office and it's not tied to something I'm passionate about or it's not, it doesn't result in an outcome that, that I want to see, to me, it's just a big waste of time. I'm just trading my life away for a paycheck. So I would say that was the, the real impetus. And so after that, I didn't know what, I didn't know what else was out there. So I ended up going back to school to do my, my master's in business and entrepreneurship. And that was really what exposed me to the world of startups and how startups can be a vehicle for getting your idea out into the world. And so since then, I've pretty much exclusively worked 
in or with early stage tech startups. Why do sales? So why do the MBA and then go into sales for startups? Why pick that route? It, Was it intentional or did I it think just I happen? organically fell into that role because I understood the technical side of things and Waterloo is a highly technical school, but I also understood the business side of things and I gravitated more towards the business. So with that hybrid skill set, I was able to bridge that gap for a lot of the hardcore technical founders out there who just wanted to build something cool and who hadn't considered, you know, how you commercialize or, or how you actually make money from it. Being in sales and startups, what's one or two things that really stood out to you that people normally get wrong or underestimate about building a startup? There's a lot of things. I think the idea that you need to build something really, really cool doesn't translate into here's a good startup that's you know commercially successful at all. I think the coolness factor or the innovative factor or you know building new technology is totally overrated um, if you're not building it with a specific purpose or a specific customer in mind. If I had to sum it up, it, it would really be that what you're building is irrelevant. Who you're building it for and what they're going to use it for is what really matters. I talk to a lot of founders and I try to always push them to fall in love with a problem and a customer segment and not a solution. Because a lot of the times they approach a solution first, they build the best solution in the world, but no one's told you they want that. Versus if you focus on the problem, if you focus on the customer, you can always pivot the solution, you can always iterate on the solution. And I think people just don't realize Craigslist is a really good example. People still use Craigslist, it's a shitty website, but there's a need, mm -hmm. whatever the need is. And I think a lot of founders get that wrong or, or like first time founders get that wrong is they get tied to like fancy modern, like I need to be the best in class innovative solution. And I think it's just approached slightly incorrectly from a, how do I approach this problem statement versus let me build the best solution sort of segment. Right. I think you absolutely do need to fall in love with the problem and the customer, but then you also need to fall in love with rejection because you're going to talk to hundreds and 100%. hundreds and hundreds of prospects. You're going to get no so many times. And I don't think founders are, are really prepared for the scale at which you will be rejected. Well, most, most first-time founders, they get turned off with one no or one negative experience with someone. Um, you're going to have to do that like a hundred times rip off the bandaid and, and get over it as early as possible. So talking about your journey, how long were you doing these sales roles? Were they in a particular kind of space in the startups industry? So I started by just going to pitch competitions, um, going to startup meetups, um, and just meeting with founders. And if anyone was working on something that I found interesting or that I saw potential in, I would work with them. Often, and I started off just like working for them, just like, let me help you. Let me write you a business plan. Let me help you with your pitch. And then that evolved into more formal type of consulting as a sales consultant. And for a few of the startups I even joined full-time, I had a very specific goal in mind on how I was going to help the startup. And usually it was either finding product market fit or getting to a certain monthly revenue or, you know, whatever metric we set in advance. And I wouldn't stop working until I hit that. It doesn't matter what the state the company was, unless they shut the company down, which happened a few times. But to me, it was just like, I had to get it done. Like everybody's counting on me. If I don't do this, nobody else is going to be able to get it done. Um, you, you said a couple of good things. Can we quickly define what product market fit means for you? 
because I know everyone has their own version of that. So I don't know if I have my own definition. To me, it is really when you have a repeatable product sales process with an expected result from that. So you're selling into a market. You've defined this is your ideal customer profile. You have so much confidence that you've done this so many times and that you figured it out that you know if I sell to customer X with you know Y messaging, the outcome is going to be Z. That's product market fit to me. Got it. Okay, and you can do that repeatedly in any market theoretically. Correct. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I ask every person just because everyone has a slightly different version of PMF, and um, it's interesting to hear every founder's take. Some people have said they have product market fit in one market, but they don't know whether it's in all markets. They have it in one customer profile, but they don't know whether it works when they move up a tier or move down a tier. And it's just interesting to hear how everyone approaches PMF because right. that decides what state you're in, what scale you're in, what how you grow, how you don't grow. So, so to me, it's based on operationally. Operationally, if I can predict the outcome of my inputs, and what that looks like in terms of revenue and a number of customers closed, then you have product market fit in that niche, in that segment. You also touched on the fact that while you were doing this, there is a chance a lot of the companies you're working with shut down or don't shut down, right? I think one thing that's known but not talked a lot about in the startup space is that the success rate of startups is probably one in 10, one in 20. I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head. But while doing this, after doing your MBA, was that something that Worried you, didn't worry you, and how often did you see this while you were working with consulting with startups? How did you think about that? What was your mindset? Wouldn't that be something that concerned you that, hey, I'm working with four or five companies, but three of them are shutting down? And then is that a concern? Is that not a concern? Why do you keep wanting to work with startups if 60, 70% of startups are shutting down while you're working with them? So it wasn't a concern back then, and probably because ignorance is bliss. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I think that number, that failure rate is actually even higher if you talk about startups that don't even get to the incorporation stage, because the barrier to entry to become a founder is so low nowadays um, that you could throw a landing page yep. up by a domain and all of a sudden, you know, you can update your, your title on LinkedIn to founder yep. um, and you're going around handing business cards to everyone saying, saying you're the CEO. And so I think you have to separate, like we cannot look at the title of founder as an entrepreneur, um, because anyone could call themselves a founder. 100%. So if you eliminate non-serious entrepreneurs from the pool, people who got into this for the wrong reason, they don't have the discipline, they don't have a mission in mind, they don't have the basically the tenacity to see this through to the end. If you eliminate those, I think the success rate is significantly higher than, than what you see. And so I've come up with heuristics on ways to eliminate the non-serious yes. entrepreneurs such that if anyone exhibits, you know, one of these red flags, I wouldn't really take them seriously and Got I wouldn't it. waste any time on them. And this is just from a lot of trial and error. What kept you going in this space? So like you're doing sales consultancy, you're working with startups, some are failing, some are not failing. Why stick around in this space? What drove you towards this? Was it that itch that you saw from your like job in the engineering industry or what, what kept you going in this space? I didn't have any other choice. And I just kept remembering that meeting I had, my performance review, and I'm like, it's either that or this. And so it's not going to be that again. So I have to make this work. You're doing the sales jobs. I think I saw a small career break on your LinkedIn. 
Um, how do you go from sales job to founding your own company? What, what was that transition like? How did that journey happen? I had a kid. And so that changed my perspective on working, you know, like 60 hours a week, not knowing if you're going to get a paycheck or not. Um, so I think I had to get a little bit more serious about approaching this as a career, just something I'm passionate about and it's better than the next available option. So I spent actually quite a bit of time doing research in the areas that I enjoyed working in. So autonomous vehicles, robotics, aerospace. Um, and those were the, the types of startups that I had gravitated towards and, and worked with. Um, but I wanted to do it in a more structured fashion this way. And so I was doing research and my, my goal was to find a more mature company in one of these industries um, that I could then go and work for and, and get a, a, an actual like regular job. I didn't end up finding any in my area of research, which was autonomous infrastructure for autonomous vehicles. And so I ended up basically putting together a deck from my research and showing it to people. And it was initially prepared as a, an interview deck that I would present at interviews for, for companies that I, uh, that I was going to interview with. And then it, it just evolved into a pitch deck because there was no company that I could find that was doing that. And we were able to secure a bit of funding and, and go through an accelerator program. It wasn't intentional for, for me to start my own company. Got it's it. just that I found an, an opportunity in the market that wasn't being catered to. I would have preferred to work for a company in that space that was doing the same thing. I just couldn't find one. But talk us through the process of researching. What avenues did you use? How do you research your space? And how do you end up raising um, while trying to get a job? So I'm always kind of attracted to Blue Ocean new ideas, which... Quickly define what Blue Ocean is. So if you think of Red Ocean, it's where there's a lot of competitors. The water's bloody from the sharks attacking each other. Blue Ocean is a brand new space where there is no competitors. So you can own the market, but you can also have no idea what you're doing and, and go out of business very easily. So you're investigating, you're researching the space. What's the process? What's the journey? Are you reaching out to mentors? Are you just spending all your time on the internet? How do you go about, hey, I want to do stuff in the autonomous space to here's a deck and here's my thesis. Like what's that journey look like? Because I think something a lot of founders or first time founders battle with is, oh, shiny object syndrome, shiny, like, oh, here's an idea, here's an idea. But how do you go from industry to hone down idea and pitch deck? In my particular case, it was backcasting a technique where you take an image of the future. In my case, it was driverless cars seamlessly integrated into a city setting. And then you work backwards. Okay. You're like, okay, so this is going to happen in the next, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, whatever, whatever. it is, it's going to happen. And so you take a step backwards and be like, for this to happen, what infrastructure needs to be in place? So you need really good navigation. Obviously the level five autonomy needs to be there and companies yeah. are working on that. I don't need to worry about that. But you need, you need navigation, you need good mapping, um, you need good routing algorithms, you need pickup drop-off protocols for, for each property. And so if that's required for that to happen, then what of that can be built today that has an application today? And so I identified ride-hailing, you know, pickup drop-off protocols as a stepping stone to autonomous vehicle pickups and drop-offs because it's the same use case. You yeah. send navigational information to the app. It goes to the human driver now, but in the future that it's going to be a robot driver, but that same intelligence, you know, still needs to be there. That was the, I guess, the process I followed in terms of practically what it looks like. It's an incredible amount of research. 
So I actually used to work for a startup research firm and I would read all of their publications on all of the companies that are in the autonomous vehicle space, the mapping space, robotics. And so ingesting that information gives you a much broader kind of perspective on the industry as a whole, where it's going and what people are working on and what people are actually funding and the applications that people have actually found. So you need a wealth of information from a theoretical research perspective, but then you also, if you want to do it right, you need practical information because it's no good just building something that, you know, might not come for, for 20 years. Um, nobody's going to fund you during that time. You want to find an application that you can actually sell to a customer today. That's not going to come from theory. That's going to come from talking to potential customers. I actually drove for Uber when they launched in, in my city. I'm like, I want to try this thing out because it was like new and exciting at the time. And they were actually paying drivers um, money back then. So I tried it out. And I, along with the research I had done in, in, into autonomy, that was the missing link because that showed me how inefficient the entire on-demand mobility system was. Some days you would spend more time trying to figure out where the, the passenger was on the pickup because mapping is terrible. Like anything off the public road, if you're on a campus, if you're in a, a parking lot or a plaza, the, it doesn't tell you where the actual customer is. And, and the GPS accuracy is not good. Realizing how much money Uber was leaving on the table because they couldn't figure mapping out for, for pickups and drop-offs, that was like the missing piece for me. I'm like, if I solve this for Uber and Lyft today, that exact same protocol and mapping data that we are providing to the driver, that will translate directly over to, to driverless cars. And so that was, the, that was the thesis that was there. And when I presented that to people, potential investors, everyone got it. Everyone got it. Were you actively trying to raise with that thesis or did it just happen? Because I know, again, talking to founders in Austin, currently in this market, raising is hard. So were you trying to raise or did it just end up being an opportunity to be like, if you want to do this, here's some cash? I think the first deck that I put together that combined this, all, all these elements together was actually for a job interview um, for a company that was doing something totally unrelated. They were like NanoSat. Part of the interview was bring any presentation yeah. and just give us the presentation. And so I put this together for that. And they hated it. They absolutely hated it. <laughs> I didn't get the job, but I didn't understand. I'm like, fine, you, you can hate it. That's not a problem. But I didn't feel like any of their criticism was even grounded. They're like, oh, you don't know what's going to happen in the industry. You know, like Google could just work on this or, you know, someone's going to figure it out. It's not really relevant. So I didn't agree with their criticism. I'm like, okay. So I spent more time working on it because I couldn't figure out a good reason why it wouldn't work and yeah. why this thesis wasn't sound. So I kept working on it, working on it, found some friends from university um, who are, were also passionate about the space. And then it evolved into a deck that I just used to email investors and it just kind of organically happened that way. What changes for you in this journey once you raise? Like I've personally never raised, but I've heard a lot of horror stories from founders I work with and founders I know of the so-called investor pressure, the so-called when you take money from someone who's looking to get return on their investment, right? Mm -hmm. What changes once you raise in this journey? You have this deck, you have this thesis, you're motivated. Hey, I want to change this industry, change this space, whatever. You raise this money, what happens now? I think it depends on your investor. Most are not aligned from what I've seen. Most are not aligned with the founder's vision and what they what they started the company for. 
Most have a very rigid financial framework that they're working within. And so they need to see, you know, really high growth potential, um, an exit in five to eight years that has the potential to return the entire fund because they need to pay their LPs back. So it's not good or bad. It just is. And I don't think most founders are aware that that is what the VC is there for. They're not there to help you achieve your, your hopes and dreams. They're there to return the fund to their LPs. It's so funny you say that. There's this Austin Lacey group uh, of entrepreneurs. Uh, we had like a random meetup the other day. There's this one guy who raised money from a VC. Um, he's an expert in his space. And he raised money from a VC who came into a meeting and said, hey, here's XYZ about your space. So he was trying to tell this person who's researched this industry for 15 years and has a PhD and is basically a world-renowned expert. And the VCs coming and telling him something, trying to teach him about his space and is incorrect. Mm -hmm. And so this guy sits him down and says, hey, first of all, you're wrong. Second of all, I don't even know what GP means. Third of all, <laughs> that's not how this is going to work. Like you, you can't just come in this meeting and tell me how to like how this space works. Mm -hmm. And so he said the dynamic and he's like, you're not going to come in and tell me how to run my company. Great. You gave me money, but it's not even your money. And so like, I'm like, that's the first time I've heard a founder said the dynamic between a VC and a founder. Most of the time a founder is like, oh yeah, you gave me money. I'll do whatever you tell me to do, but it's not even the VC's money. Mm -hmm. Again, no shade on a VC, but like, I think founders should understand it's their company, they're building it. At the end, it should be their decision. Yes, take advice from a VC. Understand that you can leverage their connections, their industry, whatever their experience, but I don't think they can tell you what to do. But again, there's context there, but. Well, I think, I think that's the thing is that you, you gotta contextualize the advice. Because they're coming from their perspective that they've, you know, done this so many times and they come from like this class of venture capitalists that they know how to pick the winners and they have like this long track record. So there's a bit of hubris involved there, but they're looking at it as how can you become the next unicorn? Yeah. Not, you know, how can you build the best possible company that, that you set out to build? So if you can contextualize that, then you know what advice to listen to and, and what to outright reject. Yeah. So once you raise, what do you start doing now? Are you working on a prototype? Are you doing more research? Do you start hiring or what does your journey look like? Started now? doing all of that because we had no idea what we were doing <laughs> at the time. So we tried to do everything and we grew our team really fast, which we shouldn't have done because we did not go after product market fit. We went after chasing, I guess you could say like headlines or clout. Um, so that we could like prove that we were like serious because we still didn't actually think we were like that serious. And so I think we wasted a lot of time and obviously our investors didn't help us with this. We, we wasted a lot of time on things that did not deliver right. long-term value. So finding a customer. We were still in the aspirational stage. Yeah, we're building like this crazy thing. It's going to run the entire world, you know, in, in like five years. And so no, we did not spend time practically thinking, how are we going to generate revenue? Um, how are we going to hit some milestones that we'd be able to raise again in the future? For sure. Did you not reach out to the investor? Did no one tell you to like, look at what you're doing? Or did you just set down a path and no one asked you to, like no one told you, hey, are you sure this is the path you want to do? 
So like once you raised money, you were trying to do all these things. And then like, you did you just run out of money or like what happened? Like what went wrong? Our first investor was a corporate accelerator. So we were part of their program during this. And so we did not get much, and, and corporate accelerators is a whole different thing. They're a whole different beast. <laughs> they have their own set of issues on top of VC because they have their own internal objectives yeah. with running the program. So we did. We, we went through their full program and yeah. we, we were operating under, under their advice. But for our space, which was not very well understood, I don't think we got much out of it. I'll admit it. We didn't know what we were doing. They definitely didn't know what we were doing. And so you put those two parties together. You have really like great sessions that result in terrible advice and terrible plans being made. And so we we weren't making any any meaningful progress because we were chasing the wrong objectives. After the program ended and we were faced with, okay, this is the real world now. We have a, a very limited runway. Our burn rate's very high we need to figure out how we're going to make this into a real business. Once we could actually unplug and we went back to Toronto, um, where we're from, we actually sat down and thought about how to build this into real business, not just like a tech startup that like we were trying to fit into a mold basically of what we thought a tech startup should look like. So that's when we had to focus on, on revenue and being able to, you know, build a product that people actually wanted to buy. When you go into an accelerator, do you approach sort of building MVP from a customer first perspective or like a, I have the idea, let me just go build it. Because I think when you go into an accelerator, sort of the idea or thesis is more or less already baked. Um, like you have sort of something you went into the accelerator with. Mm -hmm. So in your experience so far, would you build MVP, try to get customer or would you go customer first and say, hey, what do you want me to build and then go build that? So I've been through, I think like four accelerators myself in different companies. And then for the companies I've worked with, probably another like four or five accelerators. Um, and there are good ones and there are bad ones. And so your answer, it totally depends on, on the program that you're going in. I would, and this is a whole topic on its own, how to vet whether a program is good yeah. for you or not. And I really think it just comes down to like, what is the type of, company you're building and does it fit with the resources and the approach that this program is going to take and do you get along with their team and do you have aligned kind of interests makes sense so you go through the accelerator accelerator ends you haven't really made progress running out of runway what's happening now what are you what decisions are you making just to go back to your previous question for a sec yeah the most shocking thing to me, even going through like one of the most renowned accelerators in the world, is that they, they kind of miss the forest for the trees in terms okay. of specific mentorship. If you take a look at like the Techstars model, yeah. for example, yeah. it is a mentorship driven accelerator yeah. program yeah. where yeah. they throw you into a mixing pot and they're like, go talk to a Every bunch of people, talk to everyone in a network, mentor madness. You meet with like, 40 mentors in, in a week. Talk to everyone, figure out who's going to give you advice, who you're going to work with, and then just get on with it. And I feel like that puts a, a lot of pressure on founders who don't know what they don't know. And they don't have the context to know who's the right person that I should be speaking with. 
And so even with a, a large program like that, it is easy to fall through the cracks, and especially after the program ends. 100%. Um, I mean, their the portfolio is in the thousands. It's not 100%. possible for them to be able to give you tailored support. But myself, through serendipity, I managed to find one or two really good mentors who understood what we were doing. And it was totally by chance that I ended up you know, meeting them or, or, or spending time with them to get there. I've, I've seen companies go through programs like that and they did not find like a lead mentor, someone who's actually able to help them and guide yeah. them. After the program's over, they're back into the real world and they feel kind of orphaned because yeah. most support, most portfolio support is investor relations. They're like, you're ready to race, send us your deck, we'll make investor interest yeah. for you. Yeah. And that's it. They don't help with hiring. They don't help with you know, setting your North Star metric, yeah, accountability, 100%. being able to like, just figure out like, what are you supposed to do? What am I supposed to be focusing on a, on a day-to-day -day basis? So I think that's the biggest gap in accelerators is that you go in thinking, I just need to get into this program. And then, you know, people are going to be throwing money at me. 100%. I'm going to be like getting like press releases. I'm going to have like a top product. Like everything is going to be like sorted. And it's, it's far from the truth. It's very hard to have the perfect storm whereby you go through an, an accelerator program and you come out the other end, you know, superstar startup ready to take over the world. 100%. You still have to do the work. You don't know what you don't know. So they are great resources, but they can be a bit over glamorized sometimes. It's funny you say that. I was listening to a podcast the other day and there's a founder, probably multi hundred million dollar exits. Um, he was saying founders should spend at least five to 10% of their time doing tax planning and he's like not enough people talk about mm. that but when you're running a startup you do pay taxes at whatever capacity if you're making money making revenue you're paying fees you're paying taxes you're, there's all these right. costs that you don't think about but you should be spending your time in doing that if you're taking distributions if you're paying yourself there are ways you can optimize and you can save a couple hundred K a year, which could mean two or three extra people that you can afford, which could mean a lot of things for someone who, who hasn't raised a hundred million, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like, everyone should be thinking about that because as you grow, your trajectory changes and those numbers exponentially grow. It's like, it's no one talks about that. Like no one thinks about tax at all when you're like, <laughs> it's a valid point. And like, it depends on where you are and what you care about, but I 100% like no one thinks about North Star metrics when you're starting. It's like, hey, just push it out. It should work. No one thinks about setting OKRs and objectives. And I guarantee you first-time founders probably don't even know what a funnel is or how to track a funnel. And like every time someone comes to me, I'm like, okay, so where's the drop-off? Like, let's go figure out why someone's not converting. Mm -hmm. If you want to like figure out where your problem is, okay, let's go look at that. But you don't even know why that's happening. Right. And so, like, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I think alignment with mentors is very important. Like, what's the mentor incentive? And I think there's very few people from my experience in this space who are doing it because they like to do it. Right. Mentors, I feel always, depending on, there's a lot of context here, but there's a lot of mentors nowadays who are always doing something on the side, like, I'm going to be a mentor for a couple hours a month, but I also do this service on the side. And so it's like lead gen for yeah. like, oh yeah, I'll mentor you and I'll give you like high level advice, but I'm a fractional CPO on the side. So like if you need 
services, you know, I can go help you, but it's like 500 bucks an hour. But like, if you want free advice, it's like, I only have four hour slots a month, mm -hmm. you know, first come first serve. And I feel like that's what the mentorship industry has become. And it's hard to find quality mentors. And I think quality mentors only come through referrals of like, oh, hey, I know you, I know this really good person and I can make an intro and they're willing to give you time if I make that intro. But that really good person is not on any platform. They're not associated. Yep. They're just sitting at home doing whatever they do. But it's really hard to find a good mentor, I feel, nowadays. So I agree 100%. And something that nobody's talking about in the startup ecosystem is mission alignment. Finding people that align with you, understand your mission, and actually align with it and want to support you on it. Because the best mentors are people who get what you're working on and they have a vested interest. It's not a financial conflict of interest. It's a vested interest in seeing your mission come to life. It could be that they've worked in the industry for 20 years and they understand, you know, it's the practices are outdated. It's ripe for disruption. There's a huge opportunity here. Or it's a, a problem that they're personally familiar with. And they're like, if you could solve this problem for me, it's going to actually benefit my life. Um, and so if you're able to filter by mission alignment, those make the best mentors, they make the best employees, and they make the best investors. And it's something that literally nobody talks about in the startup ecosystem. The approach I take is that is the primary criteria. Every cold conversation you open with your mission, and that becomes the litmus test as to whether this is someone that you actually spend time with and end up working with or, or not. And. To that point, I think something I want to do with this podcast as well is interview VCs and understand, I think we talked about founder fit and mentality fit. It's sort of the VC's mission and mentality fit because I don't want founders to just pick up money. Like, yes, a lot of founders are going to just take the check wherever they're getting the check. But if you can understand who a GP is and how they're making a decision and whether they're metrics driven, whether they're um, market driven or founder driven and whether they think like you think, like whether they're gonna make decisions and product decisions and they're gonna give you advice mm -hmm. based on how you also want advice, I would rather you make that connection and understand that. But there's no way to know that nowadays. And so that's one of the things I wanna try to do. I don't know if I'll be able to do it, but I think it aligns with what you're saying of mission focused if you're able to find a vc who is hell-bent on like hey i want to make this work with you and it's okay if it takes 12 years yeah and not five years you're probably going to have a higher chance of success than the guy who wants to see something launched on march 1st you're, you're right there's no way to know that there's there's no way to know that if you go on their website every early stage vc you know their thesis is we invest in great teams like, that doesn't tell me anything you go to any of these like fundraising gurus yeah, on, yeah. on LinkedIn yeah, or, yeah, yeah. you know, in, in the community and they're like, here's how you fundraise. You filter by sector, stage, geography. You get a list of like a hundred VCs that you cold send your yeah. deck to. That doesn't tell you anything about 100%. whether the person is yeah. actually interested in, yeah. in what you're working on or not. Yeah. And the idea is if I can get enough VCs and just chat with them for 15, 20 minutes and be like, hey, what do you look for? Um, what do you want to see? And if that can help four founders make a better decision on a VC, I think that serves my purpose, but we'll see if that happens. Well, um, I think that's just, a great idea. And worst case, even if they don't end up investing, if they like your space and, and there's a fit there, 
they can give you advice. Yeah, yeah. So there's no harm in you know having this conversation. There's nothing yeah. to lose, only only stuff to gain. Yeah. So back to your journey, you come out of the accelerator. What happens next? So accelerator, I would say, quote unquote, wasn't the best experience or wasn't success. What happens after that? I think generally you have this like post accelerator hangover that you got to work through. And a lot of it is like physical, mental, emotional burnout. And then the rest, there also is a sense of relief that it's over and that you now get to work on your business at your own pace, on uh, your own rules. I think if you have the right expectation of what you're going through the program for, it's easier to weather that transition. If you're getting into a program because you think it's your ticket to success, and then you come out the backside of demo day and you're not, you know, a success yet, it can be a bit difficult in, in terms of figuring out what to do. The most important thing is that you know what the purpose of your company is. What, what's your mission? What's your vision? The accelerator can fit into that, but it doesn't define your company. It's not going to radically change whether you're, whether you're successful or not. At the end of the day, you have to put in the work. And people focus too much on the short term. Entrepreneurship is a long game. It's absolutely a long game. It's about what can you do over the, the long term, you know, 5, 10, 20 year timeline. Um, what impact are you able to have on the world versus a lot of these short term thinking, okay, let's get you to your next round or when are you going to sell the company? Because for mission driven founders, the mission is bigger than the company. The yeah. company is just a vehicle for the mission. Yeah. And so you could have, you know, a situation where your company Gets has, acquired. Y- yeah, that could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. Maybe you actually achieved your mission and it's time to hand it over to someone else so you can work on, you know, your next plan. And sometimes the company goes path A, you're still on the mission, you start another company and it just depends on what your mission is, how hell-bent are you on the mission. But Exactly. And if you don't have that, that idea in your mind, it doesn't matter what program you go through. You're going to have a tough time making progress if you don't know where you're going. If you know where you're going and you have a a rough path in mind, whether it takes you longer or shorter or you find resources quicker or or, or it takes longer, it's kind of irrelevant because eventually you're going to get there. But if you don't know where you're going, how do you even measure progress? Makes sense. So what are you doing now with JROP after the accelerator? What are are the plans? What what are next steps? We um, ran out of money pretty quickly. <laughs> and so we let most of our team go. We even had to end our co-working space lease. We, we had some prospects in the pipeline, but we hadn't spent any time on actual sales and, you know, product market fit, like I talked about before. We just had like random people that we had spoken with and like, oh, this is really cool. Let's chat. And it didn't amount to anything because we didn't have a, a real offer. We just had an idea, a cool idea that, that we were trying to shop around. We ended up buckling down focusing on a service that we could offer today, which was basically future-proofing new construction builds for increased usage in in ride hailing and then eventually autonomous vehicles. And so really large commercial development. So property developers, um, public transit stations, we ended up getting a contract with um, Metrolinx, which runs uh, all the public transit stations in, in Toronto. And so we started generating revenue. Nice. And we switched from, okay, we need to go out. We need to like pretty our deck up so that we can make it sound like we've done something to raise. Um, We shifted from that to, oh, we can actually like sell something because we actually do have expertise. 
We have traffic engineers, we have urban planners nice. um, on our team. We know what our big vision is, but nobody's going to pay us for that today. Let's sell Let's someone get something. there in small chunks. Exactly. And that was something, that was a revolutionary like concept to us at the time, because we had been inundated with this whole like, oh yeah, talk like really big and, and go raise money uh, yeah. kind of mentality. And so we did that. And then, you know, something interesting happened. We actually morphed from a tech startup more to a consultancy. And I'm like, oh, this is good. We can do jobs, we can get paid. But then like, let's go back to that like big picture thinking. Um, now that you have cash, the revenue problem is solved. The cash flow problem is solved. It's solved. But then I didn't want to just do jobs like a consultant because I'm like, <laughs> okay, I got in this. Yeah. So we went too far to the other extreme. At some point, you're going to have that conversation with your employees like, hey, where's your timesheet if you want to go up? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I mean, maybe, maybe it, it might have happened. Not, not under my watch, that's for sure. I took a long, hard look at the, at the business and where it was and what my co-founders wanted and, and where their priorities were. And I realized that the approach we had been taking was not um, going to yield the results that we wanted. You can't just talk big or you can't just offer consultancy services today. You have to offer a service today with the big picture in mind. They, there can't be this disconnect. So I ended up leaving. I started my own company, uh, Zone. And the focus was that, look, I understand where the industry is going and where the need is. But from day one, from scratch, we have to build a scalable software solution. And I don't want to just focus on, on new buildings that are going up. I want ubiquitous access to on-demand mobility services that can roll out anywhere in the world. That was the vision from day one. A couple of things you said there. So how did you find your co-founders for JROP? How did you guys meet? Where did that happen? Friends from university. Okay. Which is probably the worst criteria for finding co-founders. The reason I bring that point up is I think I was reading a YC stat, co-founder conflict is probably the biggest cause for startups to fail or dissolve right. is co-founder conflict. And I think one of YC's biggest checks or one of the biggest things they look for before they accept a startup is how do the founders or co-founders know each other? Yep. Outside of the idea market time MVP, it's co-founder. Like, how do you guys know each other, right? What's your advice, recommendation, or was that a good fit? Was that not a good fit? What did you learn from that? process of building a company with friends from university. It, it was not a good fit in that case. And it wasn't because we didn't get along or we didn't work together well, or we weren't friends or anything like that. It was just a fundamental difference in the approach to how you view a tech startup. Got it. So for me, I had been immersed in startups and innovation and the research. So it was very vision driven for me. Um, for my co-founders, they had a lot of operational experience, sales experience, finance experience, but that was more within the context of an established company. And so if you take that and you try to apply it to a startup, you focus very heavily on let's optimize this process. Let's like analyze this. They're not scrappy. And you, yeah. And you lose the entire like picture. So you can yeah. spend a lot of time doing stuff that's like completely useless because you're not going to make payroll and you don't have any paying customers and you don't have any investors. So I think that that was the difference is that if people don't, you cannot get along with them socially and still work with them professionally. But if you're not aligned on the same mission, they will be working at that startup for a totally different reason. Than yeah. You. And so if that is not reconcilable, you will not get along. Like you will not be able to function as a founding team. Makes sense. Um, I think that's something a lot of people 
don't establish very clearly when starting a venture and they're like, oh yeah, we're friends, we'll figure it out, right? And right. when like the hard decision comes or when like equity split decisions happen or when raising decisions happen or like when distribution decisions happen, like it becomes an issue, right? Um, when someone wants to take secondaries or don't, that that becomes a big conflict of like, like just different situations, life choices. People don't understand. Someone has kids, someone doesn't. Like you just can't relate and come to an agreement. And the only option is shut down the company, which is probably the worst option of all. When leaving a company like that, what's something founders should keep in mind? Is there like a lot of legal dissolution, equity shares? How does all that happen? Is there any advice, anything to keep in mind that you can talk about? There's, there's always going to be conflict in a situation like that. The best way to prevent it is to have rock solid legal agreements in place, which nobody really does because it's expensive um, and you don't think it's ever going to go down. Like for us, when we started, I don't even think we incorporated. I think we incorporated after we got the first, we, we didn't even know if this you was need a thing the or not. You need incorporation. You need to, 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 to incorporate, to come to, come to the fees, exactly. All of the, like hindsight is twenty twenty. The best advice I could have is that fighting over pie that doesn't exist 100%. is so pointless. If you're going to argue over like, no, I want 16%, not 15%, and you haven't built any value in the company itself, it's useless. It's, it's a complete waste of time. Here's a hot take for you. I don't think you need a co-founding team. I don't 100%. think that this pressure that VCS and accelerators exert on solo founders that you need a team is valid in, 100%. in, in most cases. If you have a mission and you are the domain expert on that space, what skill sets do you need at the co-founder level? When I think of co-founder, it's someone that is integral to you being able to accomplish your mission. If they're not there, your mission's gonna fail. Yeah, It's very rare that the founder, the idea person themselves doesn't have the skill set. If they're non-technical, you can often outsource the build to a certain percent. Co-founder is someone who is there from day one and they're shaping the mission because they have a unique perspective. Very few people have that skill set. And so I, I don't understand why people tell solo founders to find co-founders for the sake of having a co-founder. I was in SF recently and the only take I heard where someone was like, hey, I'm looking for a CTO. I'm like, but why? He's like, I want to share the journey with someone. I was like, okay, that's something no one said before. He's like, I don't want to do this alone. I tried before. It was boring. It was tough. It was just exhausting. And he's like, I want to do this with someone and I want to like have fun and I want to like share the journey. I was like, okay, that's like, that makes sense. Like there you want someone who compliments you. You're driven. You want to do it together and you want to find the right fit. And I think that's a good answer. And that's one, that was one that I had never heard before. I keep hearing people like, oh, I need a CTO to drive this because I don't understand this. I'm like, if you really understand the problem exactly like you said, and you're like, this is needed, there is enough services, freelancers yeah. and everything out there for you to, at that point, the only barrier is cash. Yeah. There's no other barrier. The only reason you can't outsource something is that you don't have the cash to do it. Um, which is where you're like, oh, I need a co-founder with these abilities so he can trade his time to build the product and I can trade my time to sell the product. 
that's the only case where you're like, I need a co-founder for this. But I 100% agree with what you're saying of, I don't think you need a co-founding team outside of the time everyone puts in. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to share the journey. But the question is, are you going to compromise on your criteria for a co-founder just so you can fill that role? 100%. That's what it comes down to. 100%. And I feel like a lot of founders compromise because they either want to, they either want free labor. 100%. they, They want to offload some of the mental stress to someone else without truly vetting, is this person someone that I want to actually build this company with? Do, are we aligned on what we're doing? It comes down to just having tough conversations. Like even if you are finding a co-founder, I don't know many people who are going to sit down with a co-founder and be like, so what do you want? Like, do you want an exit? Do you want cash? Like, do you want to build a good business? Do you want to have social? Like, I don't know how many people are going to sit down and have a tough conversation with someone. Be like, so why do you want to do this? Yeah. Why do you want to sit with me and like build companies for 80 hours a week? Even if, if my goal is I want to make 10 million and I want to be wealthy or whatever, I don't think being rich is an answer someone wants to hear. And so I'm going to double guess and like uh, people will not be honest in a conversation. And I think that's where finding a really good co-founder is hard because people don't like confrontation and they're not going to be honest in that first conversation and it's going to just be off of the wrong setting. Uh, it's the same thing with investors. Like you want to you date the investor before you get the check. Like co-founder is a more critical decision yeah, than, yeah, than yeah. the investor. Yeah. They're, they're part of the actual company itself. That's a long period yeah. to get to know them and to figure out whether you work together or not. Uh, I know a couple of friends from school who started a company, went through a couple of major accelerators, found a co-founder because they were told they need a business co-founder. That person utilized something personal about my friend and got a master from the company. I was like, the fact that that even happened, Mm -hmm. company was solely built by the person I know. Um, But this person he brought in was like, went to VCs and was like, well, hey, this person has this, this and this, and like, here's these issues that they have. We're going to raise another round. So in the term sheet, put that, we're only going to raise this round because the founder didn't disclose their one medical issue. We'll just put that in your term sheet. And so the co-founder went back to him and said, like, hey, they found out about this. I don't know how they'd happen. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, the audacity of this, like, I'm just surprised that that kind of stuff even happens. To me, but, co-founder is someone who's there in the formative days. They're yeah. shaping the mission. Yeah, They're not an add-on after the fact because... You need someone to build your thing in like React. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I, that's not a co-founder. That's like a developer. It might even be a CTO. CTO doesn't have to be a co-founder. But that's, their titles people hand out when someone's at the risk of like leaving. It's titles founders hand out to themselves just because, you know, a title makes you feel better about what you're working on. It doesn't mean anything unless, yeah. unless yeah. you're doing the actual job. Random funny story in undergrad, a bunch of friends and I went on a a hackathon in India. It's called Angel Hack, pretty decent sized hackathon. This is before hackathons were big in India. Um, We we split into two teams, we were eight or nine people. We won one of them. One of the teams won. And we had all decided that, hey, if either of our teams win, we'll just collectively go to the the bigger hackathon, like 25, 30K prize, pretty big in India at that point. But even before we could go to the bigger hackathon, again, this is a hackathon project, hard-coded. We got into an equity discussion 
exactly like you were saying. And it was like eight or nine of us. And then the guy whose idea was, was like, oh no, I want 20%. Like you do this, you do this. And then someone came up with a cap table. We're fucking for hackathons. 17 year olds. <laughs> and I'm just like, we're not even in the hackathon yet. They're going to give us like 20K or whatever. Yeah. We haven't even incorporated but the fact that you've already cut out a couple of people who didn't work on the project when the idea was for all mm. eight or 10 of us to work on this together and like sort of make like a hack house. Like yeah. that was the whole intention of that effort of us going to hackathons together. But the second someone won and saw like cash was like, oh no, like I won 20, like you get 16. No, you did this. No, you did that. Like you get 20, you get eight. And before the pie was even like baked, the people were cutting slices. And I was like, you're like preemptively already making decisions. And I just found it funny how mindset changes the second a potential check yeah. was going to be signed. Up until then, it was like, oh, yeah, we'll just all work on it together. We'll figure it out. But the second there was a potential check, everyone's mindset changed a little bit of like, oh, no, I want more. Oh, no, that's not enough. But I'm like, there's nothing at the end of the tunnel. You want 20% of nothing. And I, I say the same thing every time someone's like, would you raise or not? I'm like, if it's my first company, I would rather have the sli a slice of a watermelon than keep a full grape. I don't mind diluting more. Yeah. And if I'm in the journey and if I'm building and growing, I'm fine being exploited for the first couple companies because I know that that's part of the process. Yes, I can learn those experiences, but I would rather build a $100 million company and own 10% of it than build a half a million dollar company and own a hundred percent of it. And if raising money at a steeper valuation helps me do that, I would rather do that and own a bigger piece of a pie, go to scale, do that, than own a pie that I'm never going to bake. I agree with that. I would even take it one step further that if your goal is to get experience and go through the journey, join a startup in your space, become employee number one employee. Yeah, you don't yeah. even need to be a co-founder. And you'll get to be a part of that journey in a much lower risk, risk. Where, where you get to learn from other people's mistakes rather than making your own. That is what I recommend. Most founders, first-time founders, should actually be joining startups. That's what I was trying to do. I only started my own company because I couldn't find a startup that was doing what in I wanted space, to do. Yeah. But that's the best way to learn. And then 100%. you can make a decision down the line if you want to do it yourself. You get a lot of the upside of working with a startup with much less of the downside. Obviously, you don't own a, a significant equity stake if, if the company yeah. exits. But realistically, if you start your own company, whether you're venture-backed or not, the odds are against you. The chance of you getting that you know, multi-million dollar payout is very, very low. Anyway, 100%. So it is a safer bet to work for a startup. Back to your journey, you leave JROP, you start your own thing, Zone. How do you go from autonomous vehicles to... COVID pickups? Well, our, our mission was we wanted to make every property in the world accessible to mobility services. So whether it's Times Square or whether it's like a hut somewhere yeah. in the middle of nowhere, they should all have access to on-demand mobility. And so, you know, this was when, you know, Uber had ride hailing had taken off. Food delivery was probably at its peak back then in terms of funding and, and in terms of their push. We, Are we talking about just pre-COVID or just after COVID? It was pre-COVID. Okay, yeah. And there was a ton of money being thrown into, into mobility at the time. And the model itself was really inefficient because they were all competing for the same. They, they were all operating at a loss. 
I'm pretty sure they still operate yeah, at a yeah. loss. So there's probably like 10 food delivery providers in, in the US, large ones. They were all operating with the assumption that we're going to own the market. And once we own the market, then we will somehow become profitable. Either we're going to up our prices, even though it's already expensive, or some technology autonomy is going to like yeah. bring the cost down for us. And so there's 10 companies. And the only way that they can become profitable is if each of them somehow become market leader. And, and this is this is VC driven. Like this is the reason that industry exploded was because of VC dollars, each of them having that thesis in mind. We're going to become market leader and then become profitable. So we're looking at this whole thing and I'm like, okay, none of this makes sense. This was before I was anti-VC. Um, I was just like semi-VC back then. So I'm like, how do we actually make this work? We looked at the cost structure behind on-demand mobility, specifically ride-hailing, food delivery, and, and parcel delivery. And we wanted to eliminate the inefficiencies. Biggest inefficiency, pickup drop-off, figuring out like very fine location data off the public road. Google does a really good job of mapping the public road out. Everything off that curb, it's literally no man's land. And we wanted to do this in a, in a scalable way such that it could apply to any property in the world. And so we weren't touching physical infrastructure. Physical infrastructure is not scalable. That can only apply to places where you have physical access and the cost is obviously very high. So it was a pure software play. So we used a, a combination of crowdsourcing and machine learning to develop a protocol for how every on-demand mobility service would interact with that property. And it was to the point where we tied it to the person's preferences, such that if you book like an Uber from here, it knows that my preferred location is in the front. But, you know, if there's traffic, like we could optimize for weather, for like time of day, any of that, we could route it to the back if we feel that's more yeah. optimal pickup location. And then that gets iterated and refined um, for every property that we deploy at across thousands of trips until we have a protocol Got for it. how mobility services can interact with that property, um, which is robust and, and constantly evolving using machine learning. That was the ethos behind what we were doing. We, we went through Techstars, Demo Day went great, got a lot of interest. Uh, we did a pilot with Ford at Demo Day using our tech. So, so we had a, a pilot lined up with City of Detroit um, we went to Techstars Detroit, Lyft in the city, and we had a lead investor lined up. Actually, I think our, our pre-seed round was spoken for. COVID hit, and in a two-week period, the city pulled out, Lyft pulled out because their priority was no longer pickup drop-off optimization. It was, it was safety. And our lead investor pulled out, and then all of our other investors pulled out. So we went from like Demo day, we were killing it, like we we're like living the the dream. <laughs> and in a two-week period, we literally had nothing. We had absolutely nothing. Our company was like gone. We thought this was it. And that taught me two things. One is when you rely on venture capital as a lifeline, you're at the whim of macroeconomic conditions. And so there can be factors totally outside of your control that dictate whether your company lives or dies. And to me, that's putting all my eggs in one basket. And that didn't make sense to me. The second learning I got from that was you don't need to rely on venture capital because we ended up after some time, we pivoted to food delivery, repartnered with the city because they were trying to drive more business to, to restaurants with, con with contactless pickups, which our, our platform we, we were able to provide. And then we partnered with food delivery providers in the city 
And then we didn't need to raise because we we're actually generating revenue. So I learned that you can actually bootstrap and that that model works for tech startups too. And it was like totally foreign to me because I had never heard of a, a startup that foregoed raising in order to generate revenue. And then we just grew from there. How does it feel going from, hey, we're going to raise, everything's working, to everything crashes and burns? And the reason I ask is, I feel like a founder's journey is probably that week over week. And I just think that's not talked about enough. And I just want to know what, what goes through your mind and why do you not just be like, I'm done? And why do you keep going? I think at that point, I was so used to failure that it didn't even affect me that much. I was like, great, this again? Okay, now we got to like start over from scratch and figure out like what we're going to do. I felt more betrayed by the startup ecosystem that I had done everything I possibly could do right. I had followed all of the advice. We went through a top tier accelerator program. We built a really robust network with really good people, the top people in our industry, and it still didn't work out. And I'm like, what, what was all this for? If this is how fragile, you know, the company that we were building is. There was a bit of resentment that I felt, which was like, if I'm going through this, how many other founders have, have found themselves in this situation where they are beholden to factors outside of their control as to whether their company is, is successful or not? And so I'm like, I want to do this, but on my terms. I don't want my success to be contingent on other people's decisions. And so that's where the, the path to bootstrapping came in. That's also when I realized, you know, if this bootstrapping thing worked for us, first of all, why is nobody talking about it? And secondly, all of the previous companies I'd worked with, why was this not even an option on the table? Because we spent so much time talking about fundraising and we're like, Let's work on the deck, go through our, our list of investors and all that stuff. That was what we spent most of our time on. Um, a lot of effort. It, it is. A lot of it did not pan out in terms of a, a meaningful result for the company. So that was a, a pretty eye-opening experience for me. You mentioned Zone. Um, you raised non-dilutive funding. What does that look like? Grants and, and revenue. Mostly grants. Where can founders learn more about non-dilutive funding? And when should someone do that? Like, are there certain industries, certain use cases? Does it make sense? Does it not make sense? And is it worth the ROI? Because I know grants take a lot of time to like write and you got to apply and there's a whole process. So, so what do, what's your recommendation? So when I discovered grants, I think we went a little extreme on them. I think you see a theme here. I like to do things to the extreme. I think we actually relied, like to me, it was the easiest money I had ever made in my life. From a startup perspective where it's hard to fundraise, it's hard to find paying customers, grants literally was the easiest money because they have a very defined criteria and a lot of it is application-based, especially government grants. And so it's more so how good can you make it sound versus do you actually have anything there? And at this stage, I'm really good at making things sound great. Because <laughs> you've been making decks. Here. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. So this is like my core skill set is making something sound amazing. Whether you have anything there or not is kind of irrelevant. So we were introduced to grant opportunities. I think they are, they can be a double-edged sword to answer your question. I think you need to contextualize them as a founder. Are you doing it for the money or are you doing it for the opportunity to actually deploy your product. We did it for both, and I think that was a mistake because we took our product deployment more seriously than the organization that, that were giving the grants. They have very, very bizarre 
reporting structures where you know you got to go through a full audit and you got to account for every dollar that's spent. That's what they're worried about. They don't really care what the outcome of the project is. So whether it's successful or not, I mean, whatever, as long as you can show you spent it on, on what you said you were going to spend it on. So we made the mistake of thinking that if we treat this grant as an actual project and take it seriously, that somehow it's going to lead to success. And what happened in most of those cases, we took several grants, government grants um, in the US and in Canada, is that we deployed, six, uh, the project was either successful or semi-successful, and then it fizzled out because the grant was done and they were moving on to the next cohort. And nobody really, really cares, cares about, the, about the outcome. outcome yeah. I think it's really important for the founder to define, what am I getting out of this? And I think in most cases, it's just going to be the money. I think you're going to do the bare minimum to meet their requirements to get the money. And then any actual deployment, any serious business development opportunities is going to be outside the scope of the grant. If you try to mix those two together, they often don't go well together. Makes sense. What happened with Zone once you started getting revenue, you were bootstrapping your company. What happened with the journey? How did that progress? We were doing really well. So we went back to Toronto, where we were based, and we created an API, which would allow us to provide pickup drop-off protocols for any on-demand mobility service. And we were targeting personal pickup and drop-off. And what that let us do is that we had an API, any, any company could plug in and we just charge them on a per-call basis. Yeah. Um, and that allowed us to scale. And so now we were plugged in with all their drivers, and so anytime they do a pickup or drop off at a property, we're collecting that data. Makes we're sense. figuring out where's the pin location, where's like the entrance, the door, whatever it is. And now we're correlating that with the performance. You know, where did they park? What was the, the drop off delay? Did they have to contact, you know, the customer, whatever it is. And we're collecting all of this data. And then over time, it, it optimizes through uh, using machine learning. That was a successful model. At that point, it was just a matter of doing sales. Because of lockdown in Canada, we ran into operational issues. Lockdown was very strict. There was some point where we couldn't even go into the office because of their rules around what's essential, what's non-essential. And there was a grant that we had applied for in, in Canada. It was a pretty big grant, which we weren't able to get because of some of these operational issues. And so, you know, I stuck it out for about a year until it became more burdensome to try to operate within the, those lockdown restrictions than it was worth. And so then the, the, the plan was either we reincorporate in the U.S. and move down here or I go and do something else. Because at that point, I felt like, you know, we had at least like achieved most of what we had set out for. And the industry wasn't moving as fast as we had expected in terms of autonomy. It actually got set back quite a bit because of COVID and because the, the bubble around mobility had burst. And I think personally, the biggest disappointment I had was that whenever we worked with a company, Instead of the efficiency benefits that we were providing being passed down to the passenger, right. the, End user, the property yeah. manager, or, or the restaurants, they were just being absorbed by the platform itself. There was no meaningful impact that we were able to provide by going through these companies. We were just reducing the factor by which they were losing money. <laughs> so we looked at the reincorporation thing. Um, we had some IP issues which prevented us from, from reincorporating. And I made the decision... Me and my co-founder, we, we sat down, we had this talk. And so I eventually made the decision. I'm like, look, I don't think I'm able to add much value anymore 
in my capacity in running this company. So if you want to continue operationally, you know, you're, you're more than welcome to, and I'll step down and, you know, be an advisor or whatever. And so I ended up leaving. We, we moved down here to the U.S. and at the height of lockdown. And yeah, I initially tried working remote and like being really hands-on. And I'm like, I'm not really adding much value. I left it in, in the hands of my... And it's still operational hands. runs. It, it's still operational. I think to me that if, if you lose passion for, for the space or you have accomplished a lot of what you had initially wanted to do, I don't know if it would make sense to stay on because then it feels more of a, a burden. And honestly, the, the value I add is more in the early formative stages. 100%. Like I don't want to run a large company and like attend meetings all day and have performance reviews with the people where we check timesheets. Like that's absolutely not what I want to do. And so I've identified that that's not my skill set. My skill set is like in the early messy stages. I read a really good article once where this founder, I can't recall his name. He wrote that he realized he's a zero to one founder. Right. He can get it to one millionaire hour. He tried doing one to 10 million. He sucks at it. Mm -hmm. So he just does zero to one. He hires someone for one to 10 and then he'll hire someone for 10 to 100. Because someone who can do one to 10 million can't do 10 to 100 million. Right. And he's like, understanding where you are and what you're good at is very essential. And like, people talk about Zuckerberg. He's probably one of the very few yeah. CEOs who's done like zero to whatever Facebook's revenue is right yeah. now. But very few people can do zero to one, one to 100, 100 to 1 billion and whatever, right? Because yeah. all of these need very different mentality skill sets and just mindsets. And not everyone set out to all of them. So understanding where you are, and if you can, I think it's just easier to thrive. And it's like, hey, this has reached one, two million. I think someone else needs to come in and grow this and you can move on to the next thing. And, and I don't think it's something people talk about because to me, it was a really tough decision because I didn't know any founders that had left their company optionally. It, it, is, it almost is a luxury to be able to leave your company. Because you fought so long just to get your company alive, it, it's kind of like unthinkable that you would you would leave or, or step down. But I think it is important because if you're not 100% vested in whatever the next goal for your company is, you're, you're probably not going to do that great of a job. And if you force yourself to stick around just out of like obligation, you're doing yourself an injustice and you're doing the company an injustice. 100%. You'd be much better off finding someone with that skill set. Is this when you started Anti-VC? I actually took a bit of time off. So we traveled across the US. We, we downsized to a motorhome when we, when we came down here because the land border was the only way we could cross at the time. So as soon as the border opened up, we came down. So I took some time off and figured out, okay, what do I want to do? Tried working for Zone Remote. It, it, I wasn't really doing much. I realized I wanted to go back to working with founders but I did not want to be a founder again myself. That was just, it had been five years consecutive and I needed a bit of break from that. But the most enjoyable experiences I had was working with founders. One where I could have boundaries so I didn't get drawn too much into like the day-to-day the -day drama, um, but that I would actually be able to, to be impactful. I, I went through a phase where I was trying to job search and I wanted to work for like a VC or, or something. It, it, that phase didn't last very long. But part of that phase, I worked with a career coach who got me active on, on LinkedIn. He's nice. like, you got you to be on LinkedIn. You got to build a brand um, and it'll help you with your job search. So I went on, on LinkedIn. I thought the whole thing was dumb. It was like so cringe, like the stuff that, that people posted. And my network was just like random people at that time. 
So I didn't even know it was even really like a creator kind of platform back then. And and my coach was like, no, you just write a post every day. I'm like, why would I write a post? Like, what am I going to talk about? He's like, it doesn't matter. Just write, write every day. And so I, I took him on my or whatever. I thought it was going to be like a big waste of time. I'm like, I'm going to prove this guy wrong at how dumb this platform is. It's going to amount to nothing. And so what happened was I started posting, talking about random stuff, like my experience as a founder and just whatever I was interested in at the time. I realized two things. One, I was 100% unemployable. There was nobody that was going <laughs> to, that I aligned with in the startup ecosystem. And I went through interviews here and, and in other places. I could not find any organization in the startup ecosystem that was doing what I wanted to do. And number two was that using a platform like LinkedIn, you can actually find people that align with your mission. And that was the biggest eye-opening thing for me, where I was able to state my thoughts unfiltered. So normally you add like a politically correct filter to like things that you say publicly. That all went out of the window when I was working with this career coach. And so I was able to speak my authentic um, views on things. And obviously it's polarizing and some people don't like it. But the minority of people that resonate with, they really resonate with. And there's nobody else talking about these issues in, in the startup ecosystem and venture capital and, and all that. And, and so it evolved from that. I ended up just taking calls with founders. I opened up a calendar. I posted it on LinkedIn. Founders from all over the world would, would book a call, 30 minutes for free. We just talk about whatever issue you're facing. And the trends I noticed were every founder, everyone in the world, early stage, is trying to fundraise. And most are not able to because they don't have that network. And at the early stage, it's your network. It's people that nobody's going to give you a check just because you have a nice sounding idea if you don't have progress. And every early stage founder doesn't have progress. Their metrics mean nothing. Yeah. Doesn't matter if you have a customer, if you have some sales, if you have some signups, it's not representative of the potential of the company. And so if you try to market your metrics as the reason why someone should invest in you, it'll never be enough. It will absolutely never be enough. You cannot. I also think it's the notion that you have to raise to get off the ground. I think there is this idea that, oh, if I don't raise, I can't start up. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked about this, like, that's not true. Like you can bootstrap. You, if you have a customer, if you have revenue, there are ways for you to get off the ground and make more revenue and put it back in the company and get a better product. And like, there's a flywheel you can create mm -hmm. and you don't have to raise. I think there's a persona of people who are not as familiar with the space that, oh, I have to raise and that's the only way for me to go ahead. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the only option, but. So this is the VC savior complex that venture capital has done a really good job of indoctrinating the entire world with. 100%. So you t talk to a founder in you know, I have founders that reach out to me from Latin America, Africa, South Asia, East Asia. Some are from cities where they don't have, they don't have a university. They don't have an incubator or an innovation hub. Um, they don't have any mentors. They don't have anything. The only thing they know, like they have an idea, a really cool idea, and, and they have the technical background. The only thing they know about a startup is that you get a pitch deck and you pitch to an investor and they give you money and then you're like set. You're, shark Tank, You're made. Right? Yeah, shark the Shark Tank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Shark Tank is one of the biggest tools of propaganda in terms of like, some of it is good. You, you learn like how to pitch and, and, and what investors look for. But I think overall it's had a very negative impact on teaching founders, putting them in their place in the ecosystem that, you know, VCs are the guys that you need to impress 
if you want to be able to make it. And so this type of thinking has pervaded. It's global now. And first-time founders, underrepresented founders, they think that this is their path to success. And they don't know the stats. They don't know how difficult it is to, to raise if you don't have that network. Um, and so this was the common theme that, that I kept seeing coming up time and time again. And so I first started off by like helping. They, they wanted help with their deck. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll help you with your deck. They, they would come back a week later and be like, yeah, the deck is is good. Everyone says the deck is good, but um, you know I'm not getting a check. And I'm like, okay, well, like who are, who are you pitching? They're like, well, I got this list from a guy off LinkedIn, and it's a spreadsheet of like active investors that are at early stage. And so they're spamming their deck out, and they're not getting any responses because honestly, who who reads a cold deck from some random person? And they're spending all of their time, all of their time doing this. Because everyone giving you lists of thousand VCs. Yeah, and like exactly. And like go cold email all these people. And all you have as a reference is a few headlines that you read about some founder he raised, you know, millions of dollars, and now you know he's he's the darling child of of Silicon Valley. So I'm like, this is the biggest issue. So there's two main issues I identified. One is you know every founder is trying to raise and they, they can't raise. And the second issue is around talent. You know, your first five hires make or break your company. So I'm tackling the first issue right now, which is founders think they need to raise and they can't raise because they don't have the network and they don't have traction. And so there's two main streams, I guess you could call them. One is revenue focused. How do you sell your MVP? Who's your ideal customer profile such that you can sell to them? And if it's like B2B enterprise, even better, such that they're able to give you enough revenue that you can reinvest it back into the company and then grow from there and sell to all their competitors. So that's like the first stream. That's what I started with. The model worked. I helped a lot of companies get to 10K MRR within two months. Nice. But it was still an uphill battle because a lot of founders, you tell them, let's help you get revenue. And they're like, why do I need revenue? Like, why would I go after revenue when I can, when I should be raising? Because if I raise, that gives me runway. And then I can like worry about revenue later, or I can just raise again. It's the notion of safety. It's yeah. the notion of, oh, I don't got to worry about X, right? I don't think propaganda is the right word, but like, these are the things people like shill out of like, oh no, you you need 18 months of runway to do this. You got to go hire this. You got to go hire that. A safety net. If you can get a safety net on good terms, then by all means, yeah, go get a safety net. But if you can't, then the solution isn't to try harder to get a safety net if you're getting the same response. It's to build your own safety net. And the best way to do that is through revenue. So it worked, but it was an uphill battle. I spent more time trying to convince people that they need revenue than actually helping them get revenue. And so then begrudgingly, I started working on a fundraising program to help founders who actually did need, and some of them did need it. I'm not saying nobody needs capital. Some business models require capital helping them identify a foolproof path to capital. So first of all, what's the best um, source of, of capitalization for your company that works for you and helps you achieve your mission? And then how do you actually get it? Yes. And so I currently run a course on how to get your first check in 30 days. And the way it works is I teach founders how to attract mission-aligned investors. So either angels, high net worth individuals, family offices, uh, industry execs, using LinkedIn. And LinkedIn is probably the most underrated tool for founders because everyone you could possibly need that could help you with your business has a LinkedIn profile. They at least have a profile. It's just a matter of you being able to find and, and attract the right people. And people use LinkedIn a lot like cold outreach. They spam out invites. I think that's totally ineffective and the wrong way to do it. I think the power is really through your messaging. 
to be able to articulate your mission and why other people should get excited about what you're working on. And if you can do that, there's lots of ways of getting that message out there um, on LinkedIn such that the people that respond to it will actually reach out to you. And so you've already filtered people that reach out to you by your litmus test, which is, do they like my mission? And do they like what I'm working on? And that, if you can filter by that criteria, you've already eliminated most of the conflict of interest, most of the people that are just there to waste your time, most of the 100%. people that just see you as a tool for them to benefit. 100%. And so with the right messaging and the right approach, you can attract your tribe and build a community around you. And then you can tap that community for capital, intros, mentorship, employees, customers, whatever 100%. you're looking for. I think what a lot of people get wrong is that they want to start today and see results tomorrow. Right. And that's just not the case. And people look at everyone who's doing well on social media and they're like, oh yeah, but he's, he just started yesterday. I'm like, but they've been doing this for eight, nine years. Mm -hmm. No one talks about that. But again, there's this whole journey. They popped off in the last year. That's what you yeah. see. You don't see the 10,000 videos Mr. Beast uploaded. You see his journey from 1 million to 200 million. You don't see the three channels he's deleted. Again, no one talks about the mm -hmm. eight, 10 year grind. Entrepreneurship is a long game. That's all there is to it. No, love that journey. Love that aspect. There's a couple quick questions I like to do with everyone at the end. Sure. Oh, just one thing I had for you. What's out of everything you've done, everyone you've talked to, everyone you've worked with, what's one thing you think founders get wrong or just start their journey and have have the wrong idea about if you had to drill down on one or two things? I think that the biggest misconception is what the founder journey looks like. I think it's overly glamorized. It doesn't show what's going on behind the scenes, which is 90% of the actual work. And founders underestimate the amount of work it requires to start and uh, to build a company. It is incredibly draining, especially if you're doing something new or innovative. There's so many things you can be doing. Most of the time you'll pick the wrong things. And most of the time, the effort you put in will not result in any meaningful outcome. And you have to be able to accept that and just realize that there's a high risk of failure. It's a lot of work. It's gonna be a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of ramen. And if you're not prepared for the sacrifice, then don't be a founder. And most founders I've met, if I had to like do a cross section of all the founders I've met or worked with, most shouldn't have actually become a founder. Most got into it for the wrong reason because of these misconceptions that they have. Being a founder is probably the worst way to make money. It's a good way to further your skills, but you're probably building skills that you didn't even know you didn't have. So tenacity, like resilience to failure and, and rejection. So. I don't think I don't think most founders get into it for the right reason. The first question I ask a founder is, "Why are you a founder?" And most don't have a good answer. So I like that. What are three resources or recommendations you have for people listening? This could be books, resources, blogs, podcasts. What are three things you would recommend for a young founder, an experienced founder, or anyone who wants to be in the space? Ooh, I would recommend. In, in, These in, could also be things that you just really like. It doesn't have to be anything particular. I would recommend founders not spend much time on social media, even LinkedIn. Um, most of the content 
on there is optimized for clicks and and lead gen and vanity metrics. It's not real content. There's no barrier to publishing on LinkedIn or any social media platform. It's mostly largely a waste of time. If you're going to use these tools for your business, you have to use them intentionally. Don't go on there expecting that you're going to really learn anything. There's probably out of the large like influencer types, like the number that I actually get along with or would trust their content, I could probably count them on one hand. In terms of information on good advice, books are generally a better resource. Actually, I don't give a lot of book recommendations. And the reason is because nobody's going to read it. Like who's going to actually, like how many book recommendations do you get in a week? And do you actually go and read them? I I, like every book recommendation I get, I buy it. So I try to do that too. But sometimes it gets out of hand. Like I have a backlog. You should see my wish list on Amazon. I walk it's around like, with four books in my bag. Okay, uh-huh. so you're an exception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But books are useful. Yeah, yeah. But there is a barrier. Like someone has to be willing to sit down and, and read it yeah, or, or put it on auto. Most people don't. I don't usually recommend specific books to people. But if you're serious about bettering yourself as a person, and this goes outside of the yeah. scope of entrepreneurship, yeah. Books are a much better resource than podcasts, YouTube videos, social media posts, 100%. blogs, even newsletters. Yeah, I would recommend, and, and I would look at their specific case before, okay. before I recommend any particular. What's your startup stack? So example answer is like one entrepreneur just uses Google exclusively. So Docs, Notes, Google Drive, Gmail, like that's their stack. Someone uses Notion, Jira, Drive, GitHub's, Slack. What's your stack? What tools and tech do you use to operate on a daily basis? I use Google because it's just easy. And everyone, it, it's interoperable. Everybody has it. You don't have to worry about anything. It works So you exclusively on. use just Google, Google Drive, Google Notes, Google Docs. Everything. Yeah, I use G Suite for business. The, the, nice. I mean, that's just what works for me. And I don't, I don't spend too much time evaluating different options. Nice. Realistically, unless you have like high traffic or, or specialized like operations, like any tool will probably get the job done. So just find one that literally just gets the job done for you and use it. You could always switch later. Cool. I ask every guest to give me a question for the next guest. So your question is, how big do you want to succeed and why? To me, I would start by defining success. Success to me is whether I achieved my mission or not. So my mission is to provide resources such that any founder in the world has access to the basic knowledge required for them to build their startup. So that's my goal. Okay. And so how big that needs to be, that needs to be global if I'm going to achieve it. Okay. And why this? Because I've seen what happens when founders don't have that resources, have those resources. They end up chasing vanity metrics and sending cold decks all day, and they are not able to achieve their mission. And what that means is that's one less unique idea with potential for impact to get out there into the world. And that's what startups are. They're, yeah. they're a vehicle by which yeah. you, you actualize your idea. And so I've seen what happens if they don't have that, that knowledge and those resources. So I want to fix that. Got it. Well, what's your question for whoever my next guest? Who's the next guest? I don't know. I, I would ask them. I mean, it varies based on the schedule. So it could be whoever, but that, that's the whole point is it could be. So whoever. if it's just general, I would ask them, what's your mission? And when did you realize that this was your mission? Sweet. But yeah, I think, I think that's all I have for you.
where can listeners reach out? What do you want to plug? Where is there going to be a 50% off your course for it? But where, where should people reach out? What, where should they know more about you? They, they can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just look at my name, Salim Ahmed, the anti-VC. Website for my course is antivc.co. It's how to get your first check in, link everything, in, in yeah. 30 days. Yeah, that's where they can find me. Sweet. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate the conversation. It's been great. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into Funds and Founders. If you're a local Austin founder, a venture capitalist, or just someone who's building and in the middle of their journey and would like to be featured on an upcoming episode, submit your guest pitch to abhinavsinha.podcast at gmail.com. If you have a founder-specific event you'd like to promote on the podcast, you can also reach out to me. If you want to continue to get support through your founder journey, hit the follow button and I'll see you in the next episode.